Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. In today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by the musician, guitarist, songwriter and author, Zal Clemenson. Hi, Bob. Nice, nice to join you. Hi there. You originally played in the Glasgow-based band Teargast, and then you found fame with a sensational Alex Harvey band. And I think I, I spoke before you and you were saying that I, you were the first band I saw. What a great band. Yeah, excellent band. Yeah, good fun. All, 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 all good. Well, most of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, before we... We sort of talk about the music and that. How have, how have the last 18 months been for you? Yeah, it was a lockdown and stuff. Yeah, initially it was quite difficult, you know, because I live in a small village in West Yorkshire. And it's quite, it's, 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 I wouldn't say it was isolated, but it's, it's, it's quiet. And um, uh, it's like one road in, one road out sort of thing. So, it, um, uh, yeah, it, it felt quite, it felt quite, uh, quite a pressure really to be, to be stuck at home and, uh, you know, it was, Moments when you thought you couldn't get out to do anything, but yeah, generally speaking, I just occupied my time working on some songs, yeah, and doing a, doing a bit of writing as well. So, yeah, the music, the music, I think was uh, was a bit of a savior, really, just something to do. That's great. Yeah, I, th- I think it's been very difficult for a lot of people, and I don't know about you, but I, I found sort of a lot of the days very, very similar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think Netflix must have done very well. Yeah, a lot of TV, a lot of football. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, before we talk about your musical career, tell us about your journey and how you came into the music industry. Well, it all started at school. Yeah. Um, when we about 14, 14, 15 years old, we got together a band at school in Glasgow. Who were, um, and there was a couple of other guys in the, in the school, a couple of guys in the guy in my class, and they all just fancied the idea of, of, of learning to play something and learning to uh, to play music. And I chose the guitar, one guy chose the drums, etc. So it was a little bit like, you know, pick the instrument and then go on with it. So this band was called the Bull Weevils. Yeah. And um, this must have been around about 65, 66-ish, something like that. And, yeah, we just kind of love to play a few songs. I mean, I'd been listening to, when I started to get interested in the guitar, well, maybe a few years before that, when I heard, for the first time when I was living in Australia as a child, I heard, first time I heard Elvis Presley and and Scotty Lewis, the guitar player then, and, and yeah. you know, Bill Haley and the Comets and Buddy Holly, those kind of acts in the, um, in the very early 60s. And... That kind of, you know, pricked up my ears when I heard that. It was a kind of noise, a kind of sound that I liked. Yeah. You know, and um, at that point, my parents, bless them, were listening to things like like uh, Doris Day and Bing Crosby and, and, and people like that, you know, Frank Sinatra and so on. So I had a lot of music going around in the house at the time. Um, but then when I started to hear, as I say, I started to hear that kind of rock and roll type, type of sound, and kind of guitar noise, and then of course along came Chuck Berry. Oh yeah, and uh, and that was me. I just thought, wow, that is a great sound. That's a great noise. I need to learn to, to do that. And that's one of the first things, one of the first things I learned to play on the guitar was to learn. And I think for a lot of people, for certainly for a lot of rock guitar players, yeah. Chuck Berry is probably the most influential guitarist of them all. For my, you know, in my opinion. 
And did, did you have any lessons, or did you? Did you no, I never. No, I never. I never had any lessons. No. Uh, also had another guitarist called Wes Montgomery and a sort of contemporary of his called Kenny Burrell, the little jazz guitar players. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, they made a kind of sound. Wes Montgomery in particular used to play with a lot of octaves, the style of playing octaves together, and I thought that was just such a beautiful sound. Um, so it was exactly something that I learned, a technique that I learned, um, and brought it into my own playing, brought it into the more the rock style of playing. You hear a lot of guitar players using it. Uh, I've used it ever since. But yeah. Um, So, yeah, so we got the band off the ground and we started to play, played the school dance, like prom night type thing. We played church halls, we played town halls around Scotland. We had an agent who was also at the same school as us, so we all kind of stemmed out from the same place. Yeah. And... He worked to get us some gigs and things like that. So we started to gig at weekends, back to school on Monday to Friday, and then gig again the following weekend. And that went on for quite a for quite a while. Yeah, we had a couple of morphing sort of episodes from Bull Weevils to Tear Gas, but yeah, we kind of went through a little bit of a, a detour with a couple of other lineups that uh, that were you know kind of similar to what we'd been doing. Yeah. And at that point, we were playing mostly. Well, what you had to play was basically dance music, and our, our main interest, and most of the bands around Glasgow and Scotland were playing, effectively playing black American soul music, R&B music, Tamla, Stax, those kind of labels, Joe Tex, all that sort of thing, and um, so that was the kind of music that, that I was brought up on, wasn't uh, listening to Steve Cropper, you know, playing from the, the Stax, oh, yes. Memphis R&B yeah, bands. yeah. yeah. Uh, with Sam and Dave and all those sort of people, so that was a real big influence on us at that time. Obviously, when when you hear of a lot of the stack stuff and, and that type of stuff, the guitar sounds yeah. quite clean, maybe with a bit of reverb on. When yeah. when did the thing about the more distorted type of sound was that just Hendrix or had it started before? We how, when did you yeah, start playing with I, more distortion? Yeah, I think it was Hendrix to, to a degree. I can't really date things specifically, no. but um, tear gas obviously when we sort of morphed into tear gas, we were listening much more to the, looking at Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, and, and looking at the kind of bands, some of the American, heavier American bands as well. Yeah. So that was obviously, a, yeah, that was a bit of a, a bit of a transition from the, as you say, the clean, funky kind of guitar style into the more improvised, if you like, Henry's very improvised a lot of the time. So, yeah, there was a kind of more of a free-form approach to playing along with that particularly big sound. Yeah, and I guess it you, you sort of found it enabled you to get more sustain and, and play play perhaps a little bit differently. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You just kind of went through a, went through a, a sort of process of choosing amplifiers that yeah. basically give you more and more gain yeah. and uh, and more and more speakers and so on. So the thing was getting, you know, the thing was getting, the tear gas in particular were very loud. I mean, the pretty loud band, you know, I can recall the sort of, you know, as I said to you earlier, we were playing games that most people were just there to dance. Yeah. And the problem with tear gas was that you just couldn't dance to tear gas. It was much more prog rock. So we had a bit of a problem sort of transitioning over to, so eventually we had an audience that instead of dancing, they just sort of sat cross-legged in front of us on the floor. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, we got into that whole thing, you know, and that was much more of the prog rock. Um, heavy metal, heavy rock, sort of certain things. Yeah, and, d- and did you realise at the time that you were sort of getting your own sound, that it was your sound and, and a bit different yeah. to a lot of other people? 
I mean, I was, I was, I was heavily influenced by Jeff Beck and Richie Blackmore at the time, yeah. and the kind of sound of they were getting that kind of that kind of bigger guitar sound, where the guitar was the prominent, you know, instrument in the music. So, yeah, for me, it was a case of like sort of kind of joining in with, with those kind of guitar heroes and yeah. trying to learn some of their techniques and some of their licks and so on. And then eventually, I had Frank Zappa. And I thought to myself, right, forget it. Just play the guitar your own way. Yeah, yeah. you know, because that—that's—that's that's really where it comes out at the end. You know, you somebody well listening to people and copying people and learning to play some riffs and so on. But you really got to put your own stamp on it at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I got one Zapper album, but it was later, it was about seventy-eight, seventy-nine, from Joe's Garage. Yeah. Um, so it's probably yeah, Joe's Garage after the main part. Albums, yeah. yeah, yeah. So when how did the Alex Harvey band start? Did some of the guys from um, your first band? join that band with you? Is that, is that how it worked out? No, Geogast for the fourth piece by then. Yeah. Um, with Ted and Hugh McKenna, the cousins. Hugh was singing, Chris went on bass and myself on guitar. So it was fourth, fourth piece. And we were struggling a bit. We'd made a couple of albums uh, as Geogast and they were, they were okay. And didn't make a fortune, didn't make a lot of money. No. Hardly made any money, to be honest. But, so we were kind of floundering a little bit. The band was perhaps getting close to calling it a day and and, um, and then fortunately our manager Eddie Tolman the guy in Glasgow and Alex's manager Bill Freehealy who was in London they must have been, they got themselves they got they got together and, and uh, I think put together the idea that Alex was looking for a band and you could say that we were in a way in some way looking for a singer um, so they kind of initiated this uh, get together this meeting with Alex in Glasgow he came to Glasgow brought his guitar yeah. and um, they built us a little rehearsal room up here in Glasgow sorry not up here but in Glasgow and um, yeah so we just got together Alex took out his guitar and he played a riff yeah and he says to he said to me come down to him says can you guys play this riff and it happened to be the riff of Midnight Moses the oh. track on the train album oh yeah and we just looked at each other and we went uh you know, so eventually he beat the shit out of this riff. <laughs> and I could see Alex, he just turned around with a huge grin on his face. Yeah. As if to say, yeah, that'll do. And oh, that's really. pretty much how the band kind of got off the ground. It was almost as though it was meant to happen. Yeah, I think he knew what he was wanting. As soon as he heard two guys play, yeah. um, I think he knew exactly what he was wanting to hear. I mean, we had, we had actually played a gig with him and um, support. Uh, in the marquee in London. Oh, yeah. But he had a band called Giant Moth. Yeah. Uh, who turned out, well, on the night, it just seemed quite dreadful from what I could hear. But I think that was a moment in time when the management team were trying to get Alex to kind of take a little sly look at what Teargas were doing and we could take a look at what he was doing. Yeah. And um, even though the band Giant Moth weren't that, that great, I could see something in Alex. I could see a, 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 pre- a you know, presence something about his, his performance and, and the way he went about it. I thought, yeah, this guy's got something. Yeah, he, he definitely had that yeah. charisma, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he, he was he was quite a bit older than you guys, wasn't he, at the time? Well, he's a generation ahead of us, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he'd, he'd probably he'd, he'd probably be influenced by stuff in the sort of early 50s, I guess. Well, we we didn't know Alex before that, but we knew of him. Yeah. Um, he had a band called uh, the Alex Harvey Big Soul Band, which was going in the late 60s, mid 60s, and so on. They went through, and they were playing, you know, like James Brown type stuff, the horn section, and so on. And they were just 
fantastic band. Yeah. And Alex was a very consummate performer, and he, he had all that stuff down. He had all that style, all that style of singing, you know, that soul thing. But when he started, when we when we got together with him, he, 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 he had a completely different approach. As though he completely sort of switched off from anything that had influenced him in the past. Yeah. And I could see that he wanted to do something very different. He was very focused, very professional. Yeah. And he had, um, and, and he was very productive. He had lots of really cool songs, cool riffs sitting around, yeah. just waiting to be played properly and performed properly. When did the um, sort of theatrical element of the Sensational Alex Harvey band kick off? Was that, was that like an intention at the beginning? Well, no, it wasn't an intention. I think Alex perhaps knew that he wanted to turn it into something very focused and very um, visual. Yeah. Uh, he worked in the musical Hair in the West End of London. He played oh, right. guitar in the tip band. Yeah. And God knows how he got that job because he's no guitar player anyway. <laughs> He just played alongside uh, Mike Oldfield, I think, at one time. Oh, really? But, um, so I think perhaps some of that rubbed off on him, you yeah. know, watching, playing their night after night, watching their musical here. I think a bit of that, yeah, yeah, rubbed off. And he, and he, and he knew, and he, the first, very few first gigs that we played, Alex was very, very focused on getting across some sort of message to the audience. He was completely, you know, in that, in that zone of, of you know eye to eye contact with people, and and it was and it was quite intense. And as we as things developed, I used to have a style of I used to amuse myself by looking for guitar heroes. I always found guitar heroes that had these little ang- ang- anguished sort of expressions on their faces, <laughs> you know, when they're playing guitar solos and yeah. strutting about and posing around and doing all that. I found that quite hilarious. So I kind of had this sort of part of me decided to just take the piss out of all of that and it became became a little bit of a trademark you know of um, aping these guitar heroes sort of styles and, and, and the anguished faces and all that sort of yeah. thing until eventually as the gigs got bigger and bigger I was told that people you know further back in the hall they couldn't see what you were doing right. they can't see all the visuals that are going on Yeah. so we, we sort of went to try and find a, a, a way of, of projecting that that performance of them further into the hall, and that's where the idea of the white face, the mind face. Yeah. I went to see Marcel Marceau in New York. Oh, and, yeah. And we got some ideas, and we put together the face that just became a bit of a trademark. Yeah, it was an extremely powerful image, I think. I remember seeing mm. it, you know, you and Alex at the front there. That was mm. brilliant. And, and so... You got you got together. The first album was framed, um, and then I guess it was sort of on the road touring constantly, was it? Yeah. Once the band took off, once the album framed was recorded, there was a kind of a a treadmill from then on for the next how many years the band were together. Yeah. And it really was just recording, rehearsing, to record, rehearse, tour, and we had signed up with a record company who were who were demanding, you know, a certain amount of records, or I don't know, it was two albums a year or whatever it was, but it seemed like we were churning out music, you know, every other yeah. day. And um, so that was pretty hectic, you know, and then did, eventually it did take its toll, I think, on Alex and Hugh in particular, both of them. Yeah. And when you, when you start off in a lesser-known band and then you get to become a working touring band that's sort of known around the country... Um, mm. 
did you have to sort of pinch yourself at the point where you thought, well, actually, you know, we're pretty successful here. How, how did it feel? Yeah, it was. It was kind of a little bit meteoric um, once it began to really, really kick off. And, um, you know, the gigs were, were, were touring a lot, we playing a lot of gigs, any kind of gigs. But we could see, we could see there was a response. We could see the crowds were getting bigger and there was yeah. a little bit more hysteria uh, around the, the, the band and, and, and in general. And uh, so, yeah, it was a good feeling, you know, that ego thing starts to take over and kick in, and you think, yeah, this is this is pretty cool, you know, prance about on stage and people sort of cheer for it, cheer you for it, and it's. Um, so yeah, it was cool and it was great, and the band were the band were great. I see, Alex was very very focused. Yeah, he directed he directed a lot of the visuals, a lot of the attack that the band had. He, it was like a cohort, you know. Yes. So he he, he was he, every gig. So he was the director of the band, really, was he? Yeah, it was almost like a military campaign. You yeah. know, he, he had that sort of mindset of of being very focused and pointed towards the audience and. Yeah, um, and, and you know his style of performing and his approach was kind of uncompromising. And I think you know a lot of people would say, "Yeah, yeah, I love Alex Avedon. You know, the hate him. You know, so yeah, a, a bit, a bit, a bit of that involved as well." Yeah, you know the the fact that you had this this makeup on. I, I guess it gave you some anonymity when you went out and about. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Not that we went out and about <laughs> much, but yeah. It, um, Nobody had a clue what you looked like in real life. No, so no. you know, I kind of, I, I, I kind of played up, played up on that a little bit. I think Did in you? terms of, you know, I thought it was quite enigmatic and to, to 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 have this sort of, you know, rather sort of mysterious, enigmatic kind of um, person persona, and yeah. uh, it, it turned out to be a little bit of a, a bit of, yeah, it turned into somebody who's who was a little bit. Um, Diffident, I think the word is. You know, I'm a bit, bit shy about things, so I tend to yeah. play, I've always been a bit quiet, stood in the background a little bit, you know, because of that. But. Yeah. No, I can see. I can see the um, the, the the gain in having a stage persona and, and coming off and not having it. You know, it must must be quite good. Yeah. Yeah. So um, then Alex left, didn't he? About what seventy eight was it? Yeah, well, yeah, we had gone through, as I say, the touring side of things. We'd gone to America, we'd, you know, we tried to break America. We were very popular in certain pockets, certain yeah. areas like Cleveland, Ohio, there, sort of some of the steel towns, Pennsylvania, and there in New York, and, and, and Chicago, perhaps a little bit as well, but Cleveland in particular. Yeah. And LA, a little bit of, a little bit of interest there, but in general, the Midwest of America, they just couldn't really fathom fathom is out at all, you know, the real sort of redneck territory, they just couldn't fathom out what the band were, it's theatrical side of things, just looked a bit odd yeah. I think to a lot of people English quirkiness Yeah. Or Scottish, well, sorry, Scottish, Scottish I should say, shouldn't I <laughs> <laughs> Sorry <laughs> Yeah, I'll be very careful <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. well Alex chose to sing with a Scottish accent which yeah. was a bit of a, you know, and I was never convinced that it was going to be be a, a, a strong selling point and I think that's still perhaps debatable. Um, what we did, what I did find out, and what I look back on with a little bit of a regret is that um, is that the band chose certain songs at certain at certain times. I mean, we were pressurised basically by the record company, the management company, to basically have hit singles at that time. You had to be on top of the pops, and of course. 
we got lumped in to, you know, some of the songs that we chose I thought were very ill-conceived, um, even though Delilah was a hit for yeah. me. I mean, I hate the song, I hate the whole thing. But um, did, did you? Sorry to interrupt, did you not particularly enjoy doing did you not particularly want to do it at the time? That's not really, no, yeah. I just couldn't see the connection, I couldn't see. Mm. For me, and I've said this often in interviews, for me, the competition wasn't sweet or mud or, heaven forbid, Gary Glitter. Yeah. For me, the competition was Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. Yeah. yeah. That's the bands that I kind of aspired to be. Yes, you know? yes. So, so Giddy Up a Ding Dong and Dancing Cheek to Cheek and all of that stuff, yeah, all very theatrical and all yeah. very tongue-in-cheek, but I think for mainstream rock audience, it completely confused the issue altogether. It did. I mean, the way I looked at it at the time, I mean, I, I bought the single Faith Healer because I just love that song. Uh, and I like yeah, St. Yeah. Anthony on the B-side as well, which I thought was very yeah, good. Yeah, St. Anthony is one of my favourites. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's very, very good and, and uh, almost prog metal, I guess, or prog heavy rock at the time. But yeah, I, I thought it was a very, yeah. very clever song. And then I saw, you know, you sort of appreciate that bands need to make a living and get more successful. So when that came out in Boston Tea Party... Um, you sort of went with it and, yeah. and you could say to your friends look I, I saw them you know and, and now look at them they're on top of the pops <laughs> yeah I mean top of the pops we never really I just we never I just couldn't take it seriously really, no. you know the whistle test was better you know the whistle test you got to play live yeah yeah not all the time I eventually we got to play live top of the pops I'm not sure we played live at all ever I can't remember that I think it was a musicians union thing that you had to yeah, there was all that carry on. Not yeah, quite sure why. Yeah, there was all, all that stuff, and it was all technically it was always a, always a bit of a, a bit of a headache. It's good to see that the um, you can still pick some of that stuff on the old grey whistles test up at, on YouTube. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was quite a lot of nice sad stuff on the whistle test. Yeah, and then the so um, Alex, Alex left. Yeah, you were talking about Alex. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing was, Alex. So yeah, that day, that 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 point in time, Alex, his health hadn't been that great, and he, you know, the touring had been a real a real pressure on him, I think it really began to take its toll, yeah. uh, he was drinking heavily uh, on his own, in his hotel room, all that sort of stuff, and his marriage wasn't in good, in good shape, as a few of us were suffering as well, so when we went into this rehearsal situation, we had a European tour lined up, headlining a European tour, so we were down in Shepperton Film Studios on the big sound stage down there with the whole production set up where you could have the whole thing up and running. And we just started rehearsals. And then one day Alex came in, uh, came up on the stage and just sat and said, hey guys, I, I can't do this anymore. Right. And we just looked at him. You could tell that he was just, he wasn't in shape. So yeah. that was that, was that was that. He just wanted off, took yeah. a taxi home and we were left thinking, yeah, okay, what might have been? Mm. And then, and then you carried on as Saab afterwards, didn't you, uh, without Alex? Yeah, we had a kind of. I know. Well, that was during, That was before the before the band split. Yeah, that was a period of time when when Alex took a bit of a a bit of a rest. Oh right. And yeah. we had an album called Foreplay that we did. Yeah. Um, which was quite interesting musically, but it lacked a little bit of direction and vocal identity, and it was all right musically, but. It wasn't quite as um, it wasn't quite as as, as in the pocket. And, no. I have, I have, I've, uh, I've seen some of that. You did some old grey whistle stuff with that, didn't you? And um, yeah, that's that's. And I noticed yeah. no makeup on that one. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say it was all a bit kind of half-assed. Yeah. Because Alex wanted to 
take a break, but the record company wanted to have something to release. So, so there you go. It was all that sort, of, all yeah. that sort of stuff. But eventually, when the band did break up, and Alice did, you know, we got to, we got to the point of recording Rock Grill. Yeah. And by that time, she was extremely unwell, couldn't make it, and they had brought in Tommy Air on keyboards, and Alex himself, as I say, wasn't 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 well during the the, the, the rock really was suffering uh, yeah. at that point. So that album was it was it was tough to get it finished. Yeah. Even though I have to say, to be honest, there's a lot of the music on that album which is my favourite. Oh really? Sab music of, yeah, yeah. of all. Yeah. In fact, my favourite Sab song is on there. It's a song called Dolphins. Dolphins. The rock Girl, the rock oh, Girl right. album. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to give that a listen. So. Um, it split up, and I, I guess you were in quite high demand by people like Nazareth from then on, as you you know, for your guitar skills. Well, yeah, what happened really was that when Alex decided to, to call it a day, we all just looked around and we all thought, well, hang on a minute, how are we going to pay the bills? How am I going to earn 200 quid a week? Because that's what we were getting paid at the time. Yeah. Which was all right at that time, but, and, but, you know, that was it, it just stopped, it just finished, and that thought, well, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to pay the bills? Yeah. And the only thing I could do, I think of, was when I was living in North London, I just went down to the local minicab company, got a radio stuck in the car, and I drove a minicab around London for about a year or so. Uh, and that was the way, to, that was the only way I could figure out to, to pay the bills. And then yeah. I'd got a call, and then eventually I got a call from Manny Charlton, the guitar player in Nazareth. Yeah. I'd known Nazareth, we knew the guys, we, lived, we were in the same, we had the same management yeah. company. In fact, they, they owned the management company as a hands. And um, and we'd all played on Dan's McCafferty's solo album. So we were all good pals, you know, we all knew each other. And when I got the call from Manny, he says, yeah, we're doing a, an album. We were over on the Isle of Man for, uh, for tax reasons, I guess, with a, with a mobile studio. And he says, come over and have a yeah. listen. So I came over and um, and they were doing the No Means City album. And I think they were looking for a bit more input in terms of songs, musical content. And I had quite a few ideas lying around. So I threw them into the mix and played some guitar and uh, and then it kind of went on from there yeah because for for listeners who perhaps don't know too much I mean you, you were um, apart from guitarist you were quite a big contributor in writing the songs weren't you yeah well then we did the second album the second album I did with Nazareth was Malice and Wonderland and I wrote yeah. I think perhaps most of the songs not all but most of the songs on that album yeah. and that was recorded in the Bahamas Again, for tax reasons, no doubt. Uh, produced the uh, early 80s, yeah, the 1980s, right about there. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Baxter from Steely Dan produced the album from the Diddy Bros. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was okay. A couple of years with Nazareth. Showed the States, very big in the States. Very, very big shows, big concerts there. Not yeah. so big in Europe. Quite big in Japan. Did some work in Japan. Um, yeah. For a couple of years, but then they got to the point where we were, we were ready to do another album and go to the studio and record another album. And I went up to the family and up and go up in Fife in Scotland and where the boys lived. And they said, Yeah, we're ready to do another album. And I was like, Okay. And they said, Well, um, it was almost like, say, Well, you write all the songs, Alan, you'll sit in the pub and have a drink while you're doing that. Oh, really? And I thought, mm, This is not going to work out too well. <laughs> and as it happens, it was all about kind of, you know, I just thought, no, I don't, I don't, I want to do something different now. I want to do something a little bit more, more avant-garde musically. And I thought, yeah, yeah Nazareth wasn't really the vehicle for that. 
Yeah, yeah. So what did I mean? I've heard that you you played with um, people like Elkie Brooks, Midjur. Yeah, I did some session work in the eighties. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. with Elkie, it was uh, excellent. And uh, Bonnie Tyler played with Bonnie for a couple of years. So, and then yeah, I got a call from Midjur, who was touring, about to go on tour with the the Gift album that you just recorded. Now a couple of hit songs from that. Yeah. And uh, again, it was a case of um, sort of last minute. He'd been. Uh, it was Mick Ronson who'd actually been. Uh, scheduled to do the gig oh, yeah. for Midge and I think things didn't work out I don't know if Mick Ronson wasn't too well yeah. at the time or, or, or something but anyway it wasn't working out and I got a call from the bass player who was working in the band who played with Elkie's band and he says could you come down a couple of weeks before the tour and he says Al can you come down and, and step in and, and take over the gig so yeah that was that was really nice it was a really nice nice kind of music different music but Kind of musical in its own way, and Midge is a really fine guitar player himself. So it was when we met, we'd never met before, but when we met, we were like, Yeah, we were like blood brothers. It was like, Yeah, we're both from Glasgow. We knew exactly yeah. each, you know, we knew each other, we knew of each other. So it was a very, it was a nice convenient sort of uh, gig. With yeah, he is a good guitarist. I know he did a stint, a stint with Thin Lizzy, didn't he? he? With Thin Lizzy. Yeah, but and he always says he's he's like the worst guitarist that Thin Lizzy ever had. But you know, I have heard him play, and I think I think he's pretty good. Yeah, well, you may, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they never asked you then to play with them. Thin Lizzy. Yeah. No, no, no. That would have been interesting. I we think. We toured. We toured, but not just we toured. We did a, a an off and on headline tour with Lizzy and States. You know, where they would headline one night. Nasdaq for the headline the next night. So yeah, it was Gary was playing and um, yeah. Scott Gordon, I think, was playing at that time. Yeah, great stuff. And then after that, you had a bit of a gap away from it. Did you officially retire, or, or um, you just you know you just had enough yeah, of it for a while? Yeah, or? yeah. I decided after when Nasdaq when I stopped playing with Nasdaq, I put together a little. I got I was contacted by Barry Barlow, the drummer from Jethro Tull. Yeah. Who, who was interested in getting together uh, and they put a little thing together called Tanduri Cassette, which was musically very, very interesting, a bit more interesting than, than what I'd been doing previously. And I thought, yeah, yeah, it's really cool, this is nice. Enjoyed it, but it was music that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it was, it was a little, it never really did much. It didn't, it didn't go anywhere. So what, was, it, kind of, was it? Was there an album? Did, did an album come out? No, 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 nothing recorded. Oh, well, we did record stuff, but I don't know if God knows where it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, not much came out of it. And, and at that point, that's when I started to do some session work, you know, with LK and Bonnie and, and, and then eventually with Midge. Yeah. But, um, yeah, when the Midge tour, you, the Midge New tour finished, it, um, I kind of um, took a complete break from the business altogether and, and went into a kind of mainstream job of IT. Did you? Consultancy and uh, teaching computer program and running training courses and stuff like that, you know, so I had almost like a nine to five job. That's a big change. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit of a quantum leap, you know. I yeah. thought I better learn something. It was almost like you better, you know, I need to learn something else apart from just playing the guitar. And I, saw, I thought computers were, yeah, I thought that's the future. Yeah. Yeah, get a computer, learn how to do that. And, um, and it was fine, you know, it was okay. It was very mainstream. You put a suit and tie on and you go and run a run a seminar teaching people how to program computers and it was fine. Um up to a point. And then, you know, I bought but I always struggled, you know, to, to, to kind of um, fit into that sort of mainstream sort of work ethic thing. 
And were you still sort of playing the guitar evenings and weekends? or did No, you... no, I didn't play guitar at all. Oh, right, you just had a break but from I'm not, it's a strange thing. I don't know if it's just me or other people, other musicians, but when I'm not playing professionally, yeah. when I'm not fully focused on, on writing or playing music, I tend not to play the guitar at all. I don't oh, pick right. it up at all, so... Oh, right. You know, so it was, uh, I, long, I had a good long break. Does it take you a long time to sort of, get, you know, take the rust off and when you get back into it or not? Yeah, not, not particularly. No, what happened was I got, I got a call eventually from Ted McKenna, the drummer, the Sabs drummer, yeah. who'd, lived, who'd moved back to Glasgow, near, near Glasgow, and he said, look, come on. He just had a little rehearsal room that he worked in, his kit, his drums. And he got me back playing again, you know. He said, yeah. guitar, come down and have a play, you know. And I, him and I and Alan Thompson, bass player, um, one of my favourite bass players, we got a little, you know, we had a little, more, more like fusion stuff we were doing, like jazz, fusion, rock. Yeah. And that was nice. It got me back into playing, got my, my fingers going again, as you said. And um, and that kind of snowballed into reforming a version of Sab. Yeah. In the mid, around about, I can't remember exactly, the beginning of 1991, somewhere like that. And we dragged in a singer called Stevie Doherty, who had a fantastic voice, but not terribly suited to stab on the material of the theatrics at all. But yeah, we did a little live recording with him. Yeah. And then I thought, well, no, this isn't really, it wasn't really going anywhere. So that kind of folded up for a bit. And then about, around about the mid 2000s, somewhere in there, we, I got a call again from, from Ted and everybody saying, look, there's a guy called Max Maxwell who, who, who might be the, the front man for a reformed sad and might just be the, you know, the right thing for us to do. Yeah. And when I saw Max and I met him and we rehearsed with him, I thought, yeah, this guy's got a lot of visual. Uh, you know, he had, a, he had a, a really good look, he had a really good approach and it kind of got me back interested in sort of getting the band back together again. Yeah. So that, that's what we did for about a year or two again, back in about 2006, 2007. And then there was a gap until your last project. Yeah, again, it was it was, um, it was a case of how far can we go with Saab. And one of the, one of the things, the main thing for me at, at that point in time was I was desperate for us to, live, to, get, to get some new material done. Yes. Write some new songs, get some new music. And the response I got from everybody else was really rather lukewarm and not terribly enthusiastic. So I thought, well, you know, guys, I'm, I, I can't, I can't go up here and prance about to Delilah. It might yeah. happen, mate. It's just not happening. You know, I just felt like I was becoming a tribute to myself, and it yeah. was just, nah, it just wasn't good. No. And no. then new ideas I was coming up with, as I say, they didn't really get, they didn't really get the light of day. So I thought, now, nah, time to call it quits, and I called it quits, and I. At that point, my marriage had broken down, and I'd, um, uh, I'd met my partner, my future partner. We just got together, moved into the Yorkshire, and, yeah. and we got together in about, about 2007, something, 2008. Yeah. And then you did you stay? You went to Cyprus, I believe, for a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened was my partner Rachel, she got a job, her job took us out to Cyprus. Yeah. She had a contract that took us out there with the Ministry of Defence um, okay. to have some British bases and in, in Cyprus. Anyway, it took us out to Cyprus for about three, four years. We were out yeah. there and um, and it was wonderful. It was really nice, obviously. It's yeah. a nice place. I, I've been there several times. Really nice place. Yeah, beautiful place. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, uh, 
yeah, I miss it a lot. I miss the name of the people. Yeah. People are absolutely wonderful. Wonderful yeah. people. We, we stayed at a place called, called Polis, which is Polis, yeah, yeah, it's nice. up on that um, west, west yeah, coast. Yeah, all part. good. I mean, it was all, yeah. all good up to a point. Yeah. And um, I hadn't played for about 10 years. I hadn't picked the guitar up for about 10 years. But wow. during that period, during that time in Cyprus, I went through an extremely bad um, mental breakdown. Oh, dear. Sorry. Uh, due to um, depression and anxiety and so on. It just became a real... Uh, Anyway, it was a really bad, bad, bad episode, yeah. and Rachel was, she, you know, bless her, she, she, she took the brunt of it, and she looked after me quite a bit and got me back to my to, to some degree of health. Yeah. But during that whole episode, I, I thought I need to do something here to get myself out of it, and that's when I picked the guitar up again, again for the first time in ten years. And, yeah. Um, a little acoustic guitar I had lying around, and I just picked it up more as a form of therapy than anything yes. else. And, and lo and behold, it kind of started to work. I started to get song ideas, started to get some some more, uh, you know, riffs and things that you did, yeah. a few bits and pieces, and it started to snowball. And it did eventually snowball into a band called Sin Dogs. That's, um, that's wonderful, though, the way that the guitar, you got back to your guitar yeah. and your roots, and, yeah. it, and it helped it you through that. Yeah. It's, and it's kept me going ever since, to be honest. That's really good. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I've, I've heard the Sin Dogs album, um, and I've seen a bit on YouTube and it probably, I would describe, I mean, I would describe it as almost sort of not exactly new metal, but sort of dystopian metal. Um, <laughs> yeah. Good, good description. Yeah. And, and there was a band, I mean, funny, strangely enough, I, I got out of music bit when my three daughters were growing up and then I think it was in about 2006, they were playing on the computer and the speakers, they were putting through kill switch engage and in a tray yeah. and a lot yeah. of this sort of screamo metal. I thought, hang on a minute. I quite like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a style of music and a style of... Yeah, it's a style of music. For me, Thin Dogs, when you go, I was almost like going to suck all the way back to tear gas. Yeah. It was like trying to recreate the kind of heavy guitar-driven, you know, music that, that, that I just kind of kicked off with the way back in, in the late 60s. Yeah. So, and it was nice. It was good for me. Obviously, the whole productive thing was great for me, personally. Yeah. for my health and, and my mental health. Yeah. But um, again, it was one of those little bit ill-fated, you know, the direction was getting pulled in all different, in disparate ways, and it was just another one of those classical examples of too much musical difference going on and too much conflict and a few two egos thrown about. To, um, and I thought, no, it's not, uh, it's not quite going in the right direction anymore. So, and now you're working with Orphans of the Ash. Yeah, Billy McGonagall, the other guitar player in, in Sindogs, him and I have a great deal in common. And, uh, you know, it was one of the things I noticed when I first put Sindogs together was how, how much kindred spirits we were and the uh, yeah. style of playing, the music that we enjoyed, listening to and the influences that, we, that had brought us to where we are now. And um, so Billy and I decided to to end Send Dogs and put together um, uh, the Orphans of the Ash project, which is really just the two of us for the time being. Yeah. Uh, we just work on songs ourselves. We have a studio in, in Billy's house in Glasgow where we do the recordings. And we've got about, we've got ourselves now about three, four songs all ready to go for the album, which is scheduled to come out next spring. Oh, I should look, look forward to that. Is is it going to be similar to Sin Dogs? Would you say, or, or um, it's going to different? be? It's going to have. It's, yeah, it's going to have no keyboards though. 
No keyboards. Less keyboards, no. let's say. It's just yeah. more guitar driven, a little bit more grunge, and a little oh, bit yeah. more, as you say, dystopian, perhaps. Um, and it's in the outlook. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much heavy rock. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the day. No, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I, I, no, nothing wrong with that at all. It, I mean, I like keyboards and they they come in very well, but if it's going to be an all guitar band, that that would be quite exciting, I think. Well, as I said, it's, it's it's the kind of guitar playing that comes very naturally to me. You know, yeah. I've, I've, I've played different styles, working with different people, and it's and it's been a learning curve, and it's been good for my discipline at times. But my general approach to guitar is that I, I don't I don't I don't need a lot of. Um, a lot of discipline. I tend to play, I tend to play a little bit off the cuff a lot of the time, and so does Billy. So we, we, we you know, it's more improvised a lot of the time, especially when you come in like soloing and doing so, you know, that sort of stuff. So yeah. Interesting you're saying about off the cuff and all that. If I could just go back, if you don't mind, to Alex, the Sensation Alex Harvey band, where you did your guitar solos. Did you find that you varied them when you were playing live at all, or was it the same? Yeah. Song? Well, yeah, all the all the most of the most of the guitar solos recorded with Sab were all done off the cuff. Were they? they were all they were all improvised. Yeah, yeah. And just recorded live at the time. Well, yeah, maybe one or two takes and say, right, that'll do. And for me, that's the, it's how I get it's how I get the, uh, the the adrenaline and how I get the energy. Yeah. To play is is by doing that. Um, so those solos on, yeah. on yeah those solos on framed they they were sort of improvised at the time were they? Yeah, yeah. It's all yeah, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And going back to sort of up to up to date now, and probably some of the history of, of, of your songwriting. What, what's your sort of process about writing a song? How do you go about it? Um, it's kind of developed and changed a little bit over the years. When I, when I started to write in Cyprus, I realised that um, it was going to be my voice that was going to have to kind of carry the thing. I thought, well, for a start, I'm not a great singer. I don't really. I'm not you know, renowned as a, as as having a sort of singer's voice, as it, but I thought, you know, because I was writing the lyrics and because I was singing the song to myself, yeah, uh, wandering about the house and singing, I thought, well, it's going to be me who's going to have to sing, and um, and that was a big step to try and put myself, you know, in the fo- in, in the limelight as you know, you're not just the guitar player, but you're also you're going to be the vocalist and you're going to be the sort of focal point of this thing, yes, um. So that has drawn a drawn a kind of a a kind of line under what I did in the past, and it's, it's brought me into an area which is I don't always feel that comfortable doing it. But where I am now, I don't really have any choice, and I don't really feel the need to um, compromise to a degree and, and and compete perhaps with people who can sing all the way up to there and all the way down to there. I don't. Yeah. It's, it's it's something I don't really enter into anymore. I have I have my own style of doing it. Yeah, and if it works, it works. If not, it doesn't. It's, it's, well, I, th- I think your voice yeah. comes comes across very well in Govan Boy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's as I say. It's, it's I think it's like many singers. You you tend to sort of shy away when you hear your own voice. You go, oh no, I don't want to hear that anymore. But um, mm. yeah, there's a way of getting it to work. Put it that way. So can we expect? Um, like I said, I've listened to the Sindogs album quite a lot, and what I noticed is quite a bit of light. Uh, I know it's an overused term, but quite a lot of light and shade. So, you know, the yeah. metal comes in after a while, but before that, some really beautiful sort of tender melodies. Yeah, can we expect yeah, that? Yeah, 
Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we've got a few songs that sitting around that are, uh, that are in that vein. I mean, one of the things that Billy and I enjoy writing is, is not just it's not just a little song, you know, a four four minute song. We also like writing music for uh, more like score music for for films or uh, oh, yeah. adverts, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we've got a lot of stuff lying around that's more cinematic. Um, uh, whether that gets into the album or onto the album. I'm not sure. We're kind of in the process of debating how we, what sort of real direction the first album should be, should take, and and, yeah. um, and whether we should just focus on you know song by song by song, or whether we want to put on some. We've got some nice instrumental pieces of music that would be very listenable and very very enjoyable. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know how they would fit that. Yes, yeah, that sounds exciting, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Are you, what, what sort of music are you listening to at the moment, Zah? I don't really... I stopped really listening to rock music some years ago. I don't really listen to rock bands, you know. I can't no. get... You know, over the years, you sort of get the picture, you know, you say, yeah, I know, I know what that's all about, and I know where that's going, and you put on, put on a, a song for two seconds, you go, yeah, I know where that's going to go. <laughs> so you get a little bit blasé, and I hate to sort of be in that sort of position, but... So I don't really listen to much, much rock music. I listen mainly to classical music, Film score music, um, mostly film score music. A little bit of Debussy now and again. A lot of Stravinsky. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if there were two bands, to, I would pick out two bands that I would go back to and listen, listen to perhaps in most recent years. It would be, it would be Radiohead. Yeah. And uh, Soundgarden. Oh yeah, yeah. My two, fa- two favorite bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good bands. Yeah, yeah. So. You've you've you know you've been in the music industry for a long time on and off. What advice would you give someone who is thinking of entering the music industry these days? <laughs> <laughs> advice. My advice to anyone entering the music business is stay in tune and stay out of debt. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess I don't know whether it's the same now, but the excesses of fame and music must be very, very uh, tempting for everybody. Yeah, well, I never approached it with the idea of becoming rich. I never started off in school thinking I was going to be a millionaire or no. you know, I was going to be Elton John or something or, or whatever, or anybody. It was purely the love of music that got me involved, and it's still the love of music that keeps me going now. Yeah. So I don't really have any any uh, starry-eyed ambitions about about being rich and famous because um, I never have been. <laughs> What other projects do you have coming up, Sal? The only other project I have is a novel that I've been working on for a few years, and it's now in the state of... Um, I'm working on the final draft of, of, of that book. So that's something which I alternate between music and, and the writing of the, 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 the book. Yeah. Is that, is that your first novel? Yeah, it would be, yes, if I can get it, get it published. I have a publisher-editor. Yeah. A guy called Nick Pod, who's very, very good and who's very, very supportive and helps helps me quite a bit with it. So uh, I, I can't really put up, I can't put a date. I mean, the album music-wise, yeah, I can put a, a date on those things. But in, in terms of the novel, I can't really, it'd be nice to have it finished by next year, I suppose. Yeah. So so in t- without sort of giving away spoilers, what what's what's it about, Sal? The novel's about, it's called Rule, R-O-O-L. Yeah, and the subtitle is "Orphans of the Ash." Oh, yeah, and it's a set in the future. It's about a quick synopsis would be it's about evolution, really. 
about how our species have evolved. Yeah. Other species on the planet have, have evolved and the hybrids that have come from both and how the, um, the struggle for power and ruling the whole of the planet has become a kind of a two-way a two-way battle between these, uh, let's call them tribes or species. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a kind of an ongoing struggle. There's lots of fighting. There's lots of political intrigue. Uh, and there's a little love story that sort of trails all the way through it. That sounds really exciting. So it's a bit of an Orwellian Wells type of um, it's got a bit of that, thing yeah, going absolutely, on. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I can see the dystopian thing a theme coming up again. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of my mindset, just dystopia. Yeah. I think it's where I'm headed for, yeah. Very strange times at the moment, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, it feels like we've been dragged towards something um, something like that. You know, all the, uh, the predictions seem to be pointing towards some kind of dim and gloom, I suppose. I suppose we have to keep our chins up. I'm sure it'll all be okay in the end. Yeah, yeah. For a, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, I've overcome my depression with, you know, the aid of music and yeah. and medication and it's uh so i can i can operate and i can you know i can i can get through a day fairly productively now yeah that's, that's fantastic stuff well it's been really great talking to you where where can um people find out a bit more about your work so uh the only place really is on facebook where i have a page there and i keep people um, updated with orphans of the ash music and uh and, and billy and i post things there now and again yeah but um yeah, it's just that's that's about the only place to, to get any information. Well, that's great. I'll I'll put that on the show notes, Zal, so that people yeah, can um, go straight to it. So thanks ever so much for coming on the show. Thank you. No, thank you, Bob. Thanks. Nice, nice interview. Thanks for your time. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I will be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best. 